Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 63, brought to you by acmescience.com. On this episode of Strongly Connected Components, I traveled to Santa Fe to talk to three of the researchers at the wonderful Santa Fe Institute. I speak with Yoav Callis about packing oranges, Sid Redner about statistical physics, and Josh Grochow about complex systems. Plus, oh, so much more. Here we go. If you could pronounce your name in the three ways you most commonly hear it pronounced. Okay. So in America, you usually hear um, Yoav Callis. Um, actually, no, it's usually Yoav. Uh, people usually put the stress on the first syllable. Uh, and But in Israel, it would be Yoav Kalush, uh, which is more faithful to the Hungarian. Kolush, I think, would be in Hungarian. So uh, you are a physicist. By training, correct? That's correct, um, yeah. But but you, you have uh, interest in abstract uh, mathematical problems. Uh, and, right. And so so that, that's a little bit of a, tiny bit of a disconnect. So what about uh, the more abstract problems uh, kind of draws you uh, into studying it, seeing as you did train as a physicist? Yeah, it seems like um, longer ago, the more drawn I am to, to mathematical stuff. Uh, and what's really attractive about these kinds of problems is that even though some people would refer to them as abstract, I, I feel like they're, they're really more concrete uh, because you can have a definite question and a definite answer. Um, at least in theory, it's not always possible to, to know what the answer is, but at least we know that there's a well-defined answer out there. <laughs> Uh, and, and so, so there, so there does exist uh, this well-defined answer. Then, how do you how do you see it with the with the more applied problems, with the more real-world problems? What is it like working on those where you aren't necessarily sure you're going to have a concrete answer? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, the way science works is that we have to use models. We have this real-world problem, and how are we going to model it mathematically? So, a lot of people here at the Santa Fe Institute um, are very interested in, in, you know, what can we say about models of, of complex systems? Yeah, you really have to, there's two separate parts, right? You have to figure out what is the correct model for the system that you want to study, and then you have to actually go and solve that model. And, you know, there's feedback between those two parts, right? Uh, you can propose a really elaborate model that you're not going to be able to solve, and that's not going to be very helpful. Or you can propose a really simplistic model that's not going to be faithful to the problem that you want to actually look at. So, I mean, and of course, before any, any of this, you had to become interested in, in physics and, and mathematics and science in general. So what, what was it while you were growing up that kind of helped draw you into this kind of study? Well, I don't know. I guess uh, math and physics are just something that I was good at. So hey, there, that, that helped things, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it was... 
Yeah, you know? but I mean, beyond just being good, I, I assume you also enjoyed Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, every day here I learn new things from from my colleagues in really disparate, disparate disciplines, which is great. And yeah, that's, I mean, originally also what attracted me to math and to physics, just uh, learning new things all the time. <laughs> so so we're here at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the, the Santa Fe Institute and how it, it's different from, say, other places that you have, that you've worked at. So it's a really small place. There's not a lot of people. And so you get to interact really closely with all the people who are here and learn about all the different problems that they are interested in. So I get to, you know, talk over the lunch table with uh, linguists and um, anthropologists and um, evolutionary biologists. And you really get to see how those different fields can really inform each other. Uh, so, what uh, every, every everyone who's, who's in a science, uh, they they you know have specific types of problems that that you know the the they're the problems that they work on. When I when I was doing mathematics, I did some graph theory work. So, mm -hmm. like, what are what are the problems that you are focusing on uh, most these days? I mostly have been working on packing problems. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit yeah. about what, what that means? Right. Because like, I'm assuming you're not just like, well, there's some clothes, I'm putting them in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So this is like, uh, all right, so you know how um, oranges are, are stacked in the supermarket or cannonballs in the, in a war monument. So it turns out that this particular arrangement of spheres is not just a good way of keeping them from scattering all over. Uh, it's also very space efficient. So this is known as the Kepler's conjecture. Uh, and he conjectured back in the 1600s that that was the most space efficient way to pack balls in any space. And this too does an open problem for 400 years. And just uh, in the last 10, 15 years, it's been um, solved using a computational proof by a mathematician, um, Tom Hales. And just, just this last year, his team announced that they finished this project of formalizing this computational proof into a formal proof that can be checked by an automated computer program. But that's just, you know, the simplest packing problem, right? Just spheres. And then so, if you... So the simplest you, one took 400 years. Exactly. <laughs> right? So these, these problems are notoriously, you know, hard to get a grip on and actually prove things about. That, that tells us about oranges, but what about, you know, pears or uh, nectarines? I don't know. Uh, I guess nectarines are pretty spherical. Um, yeah, so... so one of the questions that I'm interested in is, or that I've been working on, is figuring out what are the worst packing shapes, the least efficient shapes. You know, we know that, for example, if you take cubes, they can be packed with an efficiency of 100%, right? So the opposite end of that problem is not, <laughs> I mean, it's a little, tri it's kind of trivial. So um, looking at the other end of the problem, what are the shapes whose when you arrange them as densely as possible, still leave uh, the most open space. So there's a conjecture that is attributed to Stanislav Ulam that actually, out of all convex shapes, 
balls are actually um, the worst in packing. And it turns out that this is probably a special property of three dimensions. If you look at other dimensions, this is not at all the case. In two dimensions, we know of shapes, convex shapes, that whose best packing is not as dense as the best packing of circles. So for example, the regular octagon. And it turns out that if you want to do even worse than the regular octagon, you can round the corners using arcs of hyperbola uh, out of all things, and it and it it packs even worse. So in three dimensions, what I was able to prove is that in the space of shapes, balls occupy a local minimum uh, in in optimal packing density. So any shape that's close enough to a ball can be packed better than balls. Okay. At higher efficiency. Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, that's that's a step on the way, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, so this I when I was looking looking at the at the website uh, uh -huh. and and things that you were you were interested in, I uh, I came across I came across some words that I know what every single one of the words means, but I don't know what it means when you put them in this order. So what is quenched and annealed disorder? Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, so those are kind of physicist terms. So I guess they're terms of art, you would say? Okay, so I think the origin of these words is in metallurgy. They would, you know, take some piece of iron and heat it up uh, in a furnace, and they could treat it in in a few different ways. They could either like dump it in a bucket of water that would be quenching it. Okay. Okay. And they could cool it down really, really slowly, and that would be annealing it. And you would get very different material properties based on which of these treatments you you did. So things that were quenched had a lot of disordered disorder in them. You would have a lot of defects in the crystalline order of the underlying atoms in the material. And I think that made things more ductile, perhaps. I don't know exactly the metallurgy of this. And then if you did it, if you did the annealing treatment, where you cool it down very slowly, then you would have a very clean crystal with not a lot of defects. Um, so that explains quenched dis disorder, yes. right? If we quench things, we expect them to be disordered. But then what, is, what does anneal disorder mean? And it turns out that this is kind of what happens in, in glass, and glass uh, and other glassy materials, where even if you cool it down very slowly, you would still not approach a perfect crystalline order. You would have some kind of frozen fluid where you have the structure that's characteristic of, of a liquid in terms of the underlying atoms, but the, the dynamics that are associated with a solid, right? You know, glass doesn't flow. Yeah. And then, so this is this is quenched and and annealed disorder when it comes to uh, materials, but it turns out there's a very deep analogy with a lot of other 
applications and fields, particularly in in computation, where you have some sort of problem you want to find the solution to, um, where you want to you have a bunch of constraints that are uh, specified, and you want to find some configuration that satisfies all these constraints. So, or you want to optimize some some objective function subject to a bunch of constraints and depending on how you do it you will get very different results so you can either do like a steepest descent uh, algorithm a greedy algorithm that at each step tries to improve the objective as much as possible um, and that corresponds to something like quenching or you can try to exhaustively search the entire space of configurations to find the real optimum that would correspond to annealing. But of course, we can't really do that in, in problems that are large enough to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm interested in is you know, trying to see what are the statistical properties of um, quenched solutions. Are there... Are there universal properties that show up in all these different kinds of quenched solutions. Even if you're looking at very different problems, there's these characteristic distributions, for example, the slacks and the constraints, right? So you have all these constraints and some of them, you know, you're, you're right on the border of crossing into the violating the constraint and some of them you have you still have some slack right so if you look at the distribution of the slacks it very often shows this very interesting power law distribution i i just realized halfway through that i wanted to go back to uh packing for a second yeah. uh and, and that is so clearly for green grocers uh or people who are still using cannonballs this is this is important information uh but where does where does packing bring itself up outside of outside of being, you know, trying to stack up your oranges. Aha, so let's see. There's a few, you know, these cutesy uh, applications that you can mention, like, you know, like, like packing um, uh, oranges on the, the, the greengrocers. Um, and the other one that people commonly uh, talk about is, is uh, cutting shapes out of a stock, right? So yeah, like... A, large sheet of aluminum and you want to cut a, a large number of circles, right? So how would you arrange them? Yeah, so a part of these, part of, uh, apart from these industrial uh, applications, this is also very relevant to uh, materials, which we were just talking about. So packing problems are sort of a, a bare bones model for how different type uh, different types of material phases form spontaneously. So in materials, you have these simple building blocks like atoms or molecules, and you have these specific interactions between the different building blocks. And the question is, how do they come together to form this really intricate crystal structure, or in some cases, more interest, more interesting things like quasi-crystals. So 
if we don't want to worry about quantum mechanics and very specific types of potential that that the particles interact through, this is sort of the simplest zeroth order thing that we can look at. You know, we just have a bunch of perfectly hard spheres, say. How do they come together to form a, a bulk structure? And then once we've done spheres, we can do other shapes. And then packing problems also turn out to be uh, very relevant for information theory. So now you're going outside of three dimensions to actually very high dimensional spaces. But it turns out the problem of packing spheres in very high dimensions is exactly what you want to do to design uh, a communication scheme over a noisy channel. So if I want to send you some message, but I know that as I'm sending it, it's going to be distorted on the way. So what you're going to receive on your end is not going to be exactly what I send, but there's going to be some noise added in. We want to design the communication protocol so that you can still deduce what I was trying to send to you. So we want to space out all the possible messages that I might try to send in this, in this large dimensional space of signals so that even if the, the message I started with got distorted and some noise was added in, you would still not mistake it for a different one of these possible signals that that I would have sent. As it happened to you, since since you are you're a physicist who who really likes you know abstract like pure mathematical problems, have you uh, have you come across a like some mathematical problem you've been working on where all of a sudden you realize like, oh, I didn't expect this, but I can entirely apply this to to a different physics problem that you either knew of or, or had been thinking about? Hmm. Another physics problem <laughs> thinking about. Um, I guess I'm just say, a little bit, little yeah, bit obsessed with yeah. the idea of something unexpected. Yeah, I just want yeah, something yeah. unexpected. It's, it's good That's... interview when something unexpected comes up. <laughs> <laughs> right. That will be great. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Something unexpected. Uh, can I think of something unexpected? There's um, a problem having to do with um, polymers. And the question is, if you try to collapse a, a really long polymer into like a globular state, what, what is the typical configuration that you're going to get? And... It turns out that that also depends on whether you do it in a, in a quenched way or in an annealed <laughs> way. If you do it in an annealed way, right, if you, if you um, do it very slowly and let it relax to its most probable configuration, then what you would get is a, 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 a uniform sample out of all possible random walks inside of a confining sphere. Okay. Uh, but that's actually very different than what you would get if you just collapse collapse the um, polymer uh, very quickly into a, into a ball. And 
there what you would get is actually something that has a, a fractal geometry. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unexpected, yeah, yeah, right? Yes. You, you yes. saw my face. They didn't see my face. <laughs> yeah. um, so it you get a shape that's something like a space-filling curve. So an example of a space-filling curve is the Hilbert curve, um, where the, the usual way to construct it is, is you, you start with, with a very simple curve that maybe has like three segments in it, and then you take each segment and you break it up into smaller segments that have like a kink in them or like a, a few turns and you iterate this process, and it gives you a very structured space-filling curve that has this repeating structure. But in this polymer example, you have a sort of a random space-filling curve. But how do you know that it's a space-filling curve? You look, you look at the statistics. If you take two points along this polymer chain, and you ask what is the distance between them um, through space as the crow flies as opposed to the distance between them along the polymer chain and there's a, a parallel relationship um, so that the distance between them in space goes as the um, one-third power of the distance between them along the chain um, and that's very different than what you would have um, if you're looking at the, the uniform random walk taking place inside a sphere in that case, you would have the, the, I think, one half power. Well, there we go. Something I expected. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. If you could uh, please say your name. Sid Redner. I like I like to start out by by asking people when it was and and how it was that they got interested in in mathematics and science. Okay. So so do you do you have do you have a, a do you remember a moment or do you remember something that that helped start you down the path uh, that eventually led you yeah. to be here at Santa Fe Institute? Yeah, well, um, I remember very clearly somewhere when I was between four and six years old, my parents who were actually completely uneducated, bought me this thing was called the Golden Book of Mathematics. I was transfixed. I was hooked. So, so what was it about, about the Golden Book of Mathematics, which I assume is part of the Golden Book series as a whole? Yeah, I mean, but this is in the 50s. I, yeah. yeah. I, it's hard to say. It just was one of those things that it just resonated with me. Just all of a sudden, something really grabbed me. So I've always wanted to be a scientist ever since I was a little kid. Well, and and now now you now you definitely are. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, the first question. Uh, so looking looking through your site uh, on and and like your research interests and everything on the Santa Fe Institute site, uh, you listed is uh, doing having an interest in statistical physics. Right. And, and so I was wondering, what is statistical physics, and and how how is statistical uh, physics different from other areas of physics? Well, first of all, statistical physics is not so much a particular discipline as a way of looking at the world through statistical okay. eyes. So typically in statistical physics, we're looking at systems that have many degrees of freedom or many interacting units, and we're trying to understand some basic properties uh, from some statistical uh, methods. So the point about statistical physics is that it's not 
It's not like we're trying to find the elementary particles or to find like the highest temperature superconductor, but it's using these statistical methods to study any system under the sun that has many degrees of freedom. So, uh, so what are the are the types of things that you then like, or what's an example of something that you then have studied uh, using this this framework? Well, one example is uh, the problem of coarsening. So, if you take say a, a bar magnet, you know it, it magnetizes. And the reason it's magnetized is because microscopically all the individual microscopic, the atoms which have microscopic spins are macroscopically aligned. And so there's a macroscopic magnetic field that they can pick up a piece of iron. If you raise the temperature beyond the ferromagnetic transition temperature, the thermal agitation wins out over the local ferromagnetic interaction and the spins inside the, the material are all randomly aligned and so there's no macroscopic magnetization. So the problem of coarsening is suppose you take a bar magnet above the critical temperature, suddenly cool it to very low temperature so it's going to develop magnetization. And the way it does it is by an incredibly visually beautiful process known as coarsening where you get domains of spins which are kind of aligned say with the north pole pointing up, other places the north pole is pointing down and these domains are growing and they're they're very topologically rich and there's a lot of interesting properties about the coursing process until you develop macroscopic ferromagnetism. So that's kind of a more condensed matter physics type problem that I have worked on for over the past decade. Uh, and, and so I'm not I'm not as trained in physics as I as I kind of wish wish that I was uh, especially talking uh, talking about these things. So in, in that, where was the, like, what part of that was, was that statistical physics sort of, sort of framework as, a, as opposed to, say, matter physics? Well, the point is that uh, we're typically trying to understand the statistical properties of this coarsening process. Okay. What is the average magnetization? You know, what's the fraction of spins which are pointing up versus pointing down? What is the characteristic length scale that describes the coarsening patterns? So these are the kinds of things are very statistical in their nature because one is looking only at probability distributions of observables rather than one particular observable. And, and then what, what are the, the insights that you, that you can then gain uh, from, from looking at these at the distributions? Uh, it, it's, yeah. uh, well, the thing is that the classic theory of coarsening, one of the main results was to, un, to determine how the characteristic length scale grew with time. And so there's something called the coarsening exponent. And so typically in, in two and three dimensions, it was believed that the characteristic length scale of the coarsening pattern would grow with time as t to the power one-half, where t is the time. And so trying to elucidate that and then find the distribution of the length scales, this is a, was an active area of research for many years. One of the other areas that, that you do work in is uh, complex networks. Yes. Uh, and, and so complex networks and network theory is, is exploded. <laughs> <laughs> I, and so uh, what what is it about uh, I mean other than it that it's a very interesting uh, area to look into but what what about complex networks are you uh, looking at when you're studying them first of all when comp we were interested particularly in growing complex networks networks that grow in an incremental fashion because new nodes or new links are added in an incremental way and it turns out whenever you have any kind of a many body system which is evolving incrementally, this is well suited for applying a, an approach called the master equation approach, which essentially tries to compute the probability of all kinds of microscopic events and understand how the, you know, how the state, how the state of the system evolves in time.
So in the case of complex networks, we were able to develop this master equation approach really well, I think, and we were able to compute in a very clean and mathematically satisfying way the degree distribution and understand how microscopic growth rules would affect the macroscopic behavior that we see. So uh, what, what were some of, some of the results that you did find? Uh, like what, what about those, those microscopic rules did you find uh, affecting the macroscopic? Well, I guess the, 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 probably the most surprising result is that until we came along, when people were studying complex networks, there is a dogma in the field of statistical physics that when you have many interacting units, many scales interacting, that short-range details of the problem don't matter. And so uh, in the case of complex networks, there was this very beautiful mechanism called the preferential attachment mechanism. Maybe you've heard about it. And it was believed when it was first formulated that the exponent, that the degree distribution, the number of nodes of a given degree k, where degree means a number of links attached to a node, scaled as k to the minus 3 power. And again, according to the dogma of critical phenomena in statistical physics, that exponent should be independent of details. We found, in fact, that in distinction to critical phenomena, the behavior of the degree distribution is extremely fragile. You change dorky microscopic details of how the growth rule works, and it changes the exponent of the degree distribution. One thing that, I, that I'm always interested in when I talk to people about complex networks is, I, I mean, they're, they're by nature complex, and they're networks, and a lot of times they're at least models of, of ones that exist in the real world, if not actual uh, right. ones that exist in the real world. So how do you go about actually finding these, these structures uh, in order to then study them? I think that part of the reason why this field has exploded in the past 15 years now is that around the year 2000, data became easily available, all kinds of data sets. Uh, there's, there's just the structure of the World Wide Web, there's the airline route structure, the citation networks, there's all kinds of other things where the data was available, easily downloadable, and one could play with it. So I think it was just one of those things where the data and the theory came together at just the right time to make this field that sort of had a supernova-like event. So one of the areas uh, that it seems that you you look at is a physics-based models of, of social dynamics. Okay, well that's a, but that's a different story than networks. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah but um, so uh, could we, I mean, sure. transition over? So uh, how, like, social dynamics and physics, in, in my mind, are not necessarily connected. So so how are, how are you doing those models? Well, the most naive way of thinking about this is that we are two people, we have lots of complex uh, emotions and desires and whatever, and the physics-based approach is to try and replace all of your many facets of your personality with just a few atomistic degrees of freedom. For example, do you vote Democrat or Republican? Do you drive a you know SUV or do you drive a Prius? And then the thing is that in general, in, in many social systems, when we two people come together and interact, under the assumption that we're not complete jerks, is that we might discuss some issue about like what kind of car we drive. I might convince you to drive a Prius if you're driving an SUV because it's a gas guzzler and I appeal to your emotion that maybe we shouldn't be burning so much gas. And so in a lot of these social dynamics models, it's really as simple as replacing complex people by some few atomistic degrees of freedom, and the interactions are typically quite simple, something where you're usually convincing a neighbor of their opinion. These types of models then start looking a lot like models of ferromagnetism in condensed matter systems, and so tools and methods and approaches that worked in the condensed matter systems can work in the social system. Hey, one, one of the things, um, I mean, this, this is 
tying not not directly to the to the complex network thing, but it kind of at least in my mind are similar in this is that one of the things that seems to explode areas like complex networks is all of a sudden physicists seem to get involved. Right. <laughs> and so I was wondering if, if you had any thoughts as to uh, what it is uh, about physicists or, or physics that seems to allow the people who, who do do it to enter into these other areas. Because, I mean, say the complex networks, and I mean, a lot of that spun out of uh, Watts and Strogatz, and like they were mathematicians, but then all of a sudden physicists got involved in and it right. did explode. So is there something about about knowing physics and being able to think in that way that lets you enter into a lot of other uh, areas of study? Well, I guess in some sense that's what we physicists think we like to be able to do, which is that we can be confronted with some natural phenomenon, some data, and then extract from that some simple physics-based models where one can attack the problem quantitatively, make crisp predictions about behavior that then can be tested experimentally. So yeah, I think that that's what makes it, uh, what I personally enjoy about being a physicist in a place like this where there's all these different weird problems floating around is that sometimes the tools that I have are very well suited to understand them. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about working here at, at the Santa Fe Institute? Because it, it is, uh, I mean, I've, I've been here for an hour, right. uh, but it, it's, it seems to be, to be a very interesting place in that like when I sat down and had lunch, I was surrounded by people from all different disciplines. And it seems right. like a, a, a very interesting and sort of rich place to work. So I was wondering if you could uh, let me know a little bit about your experience of, of working here. Well, first of all, I'm a new person here. I've only okay. been here since for 10 months. So I'm a resident faculty member at the Institute, but I've spent 36 years as a professor of physics at Boston University. And so I'm familiar with like the university setting, the disciplinary setting. And certainly what's refreshing here is that there are many different disciplines. I mean, at lunch today, we were talking about like, because someone was talking about dislocating shoulder and we were talking about, well, chimpanzees can't throw and humans can, like, why is that? And so, you know, there's been some discussion about that just right after lunch. So sometimes like discussions, you know, topics come out of nowhere. And because people have wide range of expertise then we find some useful information about it almost immediately. So I found it very refreshing to work here because I came here 11 years ago. I was working at Los Alamos lab and I was living in Santa Fe. I was a little tired of the commute and I started coming in here like one day a week and I liked it. And then along the way, I had a really nice collaboration started with a, a postdoc who was here and uh, it was, I branched out into fields I knew nothing about before I met this guy. And somehow I got infected with this place and here I am. So it, 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 you said you've you've been here ten months as as right. faculty. Um, do you have do you have a, a, any specific examples of of one of these kind of uh, interesting or uh, weird interactions that's led to either you being able to attack a problem differently or or a specific example of a problem that you were not expecting to work on, which all of a sudden right. you started to do? Yeah. Well, no, I can give you a specific example because this involved a former mid-year postdoc. His name is Aaron Clausette, who's now a computer science professor at uh, University of Colorado. So he was working on the distribution of body mass sizes, the, the abundance of mammals at different body masses. And he'd been working with this with another collaborator. They've published a number of papers. And he was telling me about this problem. And somehow in the course of this, we came up with a simple theoretical description of how the distribution of body masses ought to evolve if you start with um, uh, a certain founder mammal species of a typical size. And we actually could describe the data that actually exists with great accuracy. So I knew nothing about body size distributions or speciation or anything like that. I learned all these 
terms that I hadn't heard of before. And somehow out of that came a nice theory and a couple of papers. So I'm going to put you a tiny bit on the spot here and I ask, ask you, I, if you think that, that this, this kind of method of collaboration is something that you wish you would see or you think should be done in a, in a wider aspect beyond something you know, such as this institute and right. it maybe should be a focus more in universities and things like that. I, yeah, I guess I, I think a lot of universities are trying to replicate what happens here. But, you know, at this institute, there's no notion of department. There's just the Santa Fe Institute. And at a lot of, at most universities, you have to have a home and appointment in a home department. You've got to get tenure in your home department. You've got to serve on committees and teach in your home department. So there's a lot of institutional, it's not necessarily barriers. It's just the way the system works that is very hard to somehow break these barriers so I have to say that the few collaborations I've had with people here outside of my discipline have been very rewarding and very uplifting and very ex mind expanding. And certainly it's a lot harder. You have to work a lot harder to have this happen at a university setting. So I, I, I somehow, like, I, I've stepped away from the, uh, the list of questions I had here. So I'm, I'm now just going to jump us back without any right. segue at all. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about, uh, you've done work with uh, voter models. Right. And could you tell me a little bit about what a voter model is and then what your work has been in, it, in okay. them? Okay. Well, first of all, the voter model is one of the simplest models for opinion dynamics. And in fact, part of the reason the voter model has gotten a lot of attention paid to it is that it is exactly soluble in all, on all lattices and all dimensions. It was first introduced by mathematicians, and it, there's a field called interacting particle systems. So in the voter model, you just say that we are, people have only two degrees of freedom. They're either, say, Democrat or Republican. And the way that the system evolves is that, suppose I'm a Republican and I have no self-confidence. I just look around randomly at some neighbor and I look at you and, and I ask, well, who did you vote? And you tell me Democrat. And I think, wow, Democrat, that's a good idea. And I become a Democrat. So this update rule of the voter model, just apply it over and over again until the system either comes to consensus or comes to a steady state. So the appeal of the voter model is that it's exactly soluble. It's completely unrealistic. It has nothing to do with real people. But nevertheless, the solvability plays a huge role. So I've done two things where I've spent a lot of time on. One is to understand the voter model on complex networks. It turns out that a lot of the solubility uh, in lattice systems, which are like idealized, like square lattice or cubic lattice, things of that nature, part of the reason for the solubility is that there exists a conservation law that on average, there is no net bias towards Democrat or Republican consensus. However, on a complex network, that's no longer true. And so we figured out how to deal with that loss of the conservation law, and so we could understand how consensus is achieved on complex networks. And the other thing that I've been working on in the past is trying to extend the voter model a little bit to include more elements of social reality and understand how the system will evolve. And so you said mentioned consensus on on complex networks. What is like what what sort of results has has that led you to now that now that you have a model for consensus on, on a complex network? I guess the interesting thing, first of all, is how long it takes for consensus to be achieved. That's a, a really important measure of like how effective is your information processing. And so one thing we found is that on a complex network, with a given number of people on the network, the consensus time is much faster than on a lattice network. Basically, you have some people who are very well connected to everybody else, and they play a huge role in, in accelerating the dynamics. 
So I think that's an important result because it shows just how degree heterogeneity affects the rate of consensus. I mean, as, as you continue to, to go forward here, uh, did you have um, an idea of, of what your next like, area of, that you're going to be looking into is? I have some ideas, but, you know, again, I'm coming to the SFI in a very unusual, and I'd say privileged position, because it doesn't, it's not very often that someone who's already had a full career comes to the Santa Fe Institute as a resident faculty. So I have a couple of things on my docket I'd like to do, which are more or less continuation of things that I'm doing. But I also, this is my shot to do something crazy or something really new. So I'm really looking forward to doing those sorts of things that I'm not even sure I know what they are yet. Well, I, I hope that whatever it is, is crazy and awesome and, and so much fun. And I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Sure. My pleasure. Joshua Grochow. So, it, I like I like, I really like to start out uh, by asking the people that I interview kind of what got them interested in in science and mathematics. It, like in in the beginning, and, and some people have a moment, some people don't. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, what first started you down the path that eventually brought you here to the Santa Fe Institute. So, in some sense, I don't actually know. I uh, I basically loved math for as long as I can remember. My mom likes to tell a story when I was, I think, four or something, and uh, she took me to a family friend's soccer game, like their kids were, were playing soccer, and I said, look, mom, boys with numbers. That was my... Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've really loved math for sort of as long as I can remember, but I think part of it was because I've always wanted to understand the world. I mean, even when I was a little kid, I was always asking questions about how things worked and why, and, and math... To me, I, I mean, I now realize in retrospect, it's, you know, math is like the science of pattern and it's a very useful way of understanding the world. So I think it also had that appeal. But I think there was something else about it that, you know, I, I don't know how to explain. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just, I mean, just, I mean, you were born with it, right? Like that's. <laughs> yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. I mean, when I was really young, I wanted to be a paleontologist, actually, but. And before that, I think a fireman, but uh, Every, everyone. Yeah, right. Fire. Exactly. But but sort of you know by the time I was even probably like six or seven, I knew I wanted to be a mathematician. Wow! Um, like like I mean, I, I've asked a lot of people this question, and that is one like you are one of very very few that that say it is quite that early. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. And it's funny because, of course, when it's that early, you don't even know what a mathematician does. You don't even really know that much math <laughs> at that point. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't seven. Maybe it was eight or nine or something. But it was it was pretty young. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's still young. And, and to be honest, I, I talk to mathematicians for a living. I still really struggle on the question, what is it that mathematicians do? <laughs> That's it. Or what is mathematics? They're, they're, they're a little, little fuzzy in yeah. the end. Uh, so, going through and looking at, at the research that you do, um, one of the things that was uh, interesting to me is uh, you are looking around for the idea of, you know, the theory of complex system and unifying it, uh, I believe, was, was what your 
write-up uh, in the bio on the Santa Fe Institute website says. Uh, so uh, I was wondering what, what got you interested in, in studying uh, complex systems? Yeah, so that didn't happen until I was an undergrad. I did my first research experience in uh, an undergrad lab at MIT, the Amorphous Computing Lab with uh, Radhika Nagpal and Jerry Sussman. And I was doing something about um, getting autonomous agents to synchronize in a distributed fashion. But I had to do all this reading about like Firefly synchronizing and, and emergence in complex systems. And it's like, I read this stuff and I just fell in love. I was like, this, this is it, right? This is where all of the major problems are that, that we don't know how to solve. They fit into this framework of, of lots of small interacting parts that lead to unexpected behavior. And yeah, kind of that, that was where it started. But then I found it hard to make a living in that for a long time uh, until I came here, basically. It, it, it's weird because the uh, story of synchronizing uh, fireflies and emergence uh, is also my origin story for why I do this. Oh. The Radiolab episode, Emergence, uh -huh. which features Strogatz talking about synchronizing fireflies, is was the first time that I heard science done in an auditory way, in a, in 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 a way that was truly amazing. And so like that is that's a fun coincidence. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, the first academic paper I ever read was by Strogatz on fireflies, and he was visiting here recently, and I got him to sign a copy of the paper. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was lucky enough a few years ago to be able to to be able to talk to him for the show, and yeah. I was like, oh yeah, no, that's a yeah, he's 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 a smart 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 guy, he's a, a smart person. So how are how are you um, currently going about uh, looking at at complex systems? Like how are you uh, how are you approaching your your study of them currently? Yeah, so I kind of feel like the mathematician in me wants there to be a real theory, a structural theory that explains all of these things that we seem to see repeating over and over again in all sorts of complex systems. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if it exists, but. I think it's it's useful to think about. So a lot of what I've been thinking about recently is how do you compare complex systems? Because I think a lot of people like to make claims like, you know, the kind of emergence that you see in an economy is like the emergence you see in the brain and things like that. And it's, you know, those analogies, they are comparisons, but they're very hand wavy frequently. And I think, um, you know, one possible direction for getting at the beginnings of a theory or the intermediates of a theory, you know, there's been some development on it already, is, is making those analogies rigorous, right? There's some quote, I forget who it's from, from some famous mathematician where they say, you know, good mathematicians see analogies, great mathematicians see analogies between analogies or something like that. But yeah, it's really, at, the, at a fundamental level, it's somehow all about analogies and making that rigorous. And, and can you really put some mathematical meat behind that? Is there any area of, of mathematics that you're, you're particularly using to make, make this approach right now? Like, what is the, like, what, how, how are you starting to form your analogies? Yeah, so th there are a few areas I'm looking at. They're not, um, I don't know, this may not be a very enlightening answer, but, but <laughs> you know, one obvious area is, is networks and graph theory, yeah. where there are several different ways of comparing graphs, and, and you want some sort of large-scale way to say, you know, oh, yeah, the Facebook graph looks a lot like the graph of co-board membership. And there are, ways, there are already ways to make that somewhat precise, but um, I, I'd say we haven't f sort of found the final answer, or if there is even just one answer here yet. 
so I've been looking at that, and then I've also been looking at things from a dynamical systems perspective of how do you compare dynamical systems, where in a lot of areas of math, there's like a notion of isomorphism, of things being basically the same. You just sort of wrote them down differently. And that's far too rigid a notion, right? The economy is certainly not going to be isomorphic to the brain in any sense, right? <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and so the question is, are, are there sort of good notions of comparison that are like isomorphism, they're rigorous, you can prove things about them, but they're coarser than isomorphism. So that's sort of the general idea, but you know, beyond that, uh, it's work in progress. So, so kind of like a fuzzy morphism? Yeah, I, right, right. Yeah. I, fuzzy, fuzzy, you know, there is a whole area of like fuzzy sets and fuzzy logic, so I try to stay away from yeah, that particular yeah. word, but, but yeah, <laughs> as, as an English word, that's a pretty good word for it. On on the on the website, there's also a mention of, of uh, potentially using some ideas from computational complexity as well. Yeah, so I like to think of of algorithms as complex systems, basically, and you know where an individual algorithm is really like a, a complex system. Part of the reason for that is most of the complex systems we study, we study by doing simulations, which means what you're actually studying is an algorithm. And in computational complexity, we've developed a lot of rigorous mathematical tools for studying algorithms and their complexity according to various measures. And so the question is, okay, fine, we have good mathematical tools for studying algorithms. Algorithms are complex systems. Can we port any of these tools to understand other complex systems? That's kind of the, the basic scheme. And so there's a mention of, of studying of behavior and, and limitations of algorithms. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what, what that means. Like, what's it, what's, what does it mean by the uh, behavior and limitation of algorithms? So behavior of algorithms is kind of what you'd expect if you think of an algorithm as a complex system, right? If you say the behavior of a complex system, the behavior of a brain, the behavior of economy, you have some idea of what that means. Same thing for algorithms. In terms of limitations, you know, the questions that people have tended to look at in computational complexity, like P versus NP, are about, you know, are there certain problems that algorithms can't solve efficiently, right? There is an algorithm, you can write it down, but, you know, even on sort of moderate size instances, it takes more than the lifetime of the universe to finish. And so that's the kind of limitation I'm talking about, a real fundamental limitation of algorithms cannot solve this problem faster than X, or, you know, they cannot solve this problem without using so much memory or other, other kinds of resource limitations. And so, the, I mean, you have the resource limitation. What about uh, informational limitations? I mean, the informational complexity versus, say, computational complexity, because you can, you can define really uh, like complex things simply. I, I mean, like call Markov complexity and things like that. Like pi is an infinite number, but you can write it down pretty easily using an, an equation versus a completely random thing. So what, what are the kind of the ties there and how does it relate with complex systems? Yeah, so I would love it if there were better ties between things like Kolmogorov complexity and, and computational complexity. There certainly are some out there. And in fact, a lot of, I don't know, maybe a lot is too strong, but certainly some of the lower bounds we know where we can actually prove that an algorithm, say, needs a certain amount of time uh, those arguments are actually information-based arguments where you sort of argue about, you know, the algorithm, in order to get the information and transform it in the way it needs to, it has to have taken a certain amount of time. So there is a connection there. 
that's often not the whole story. Um, so using these information-based methods, we haven't been able to prove, you know, P not equal NP, for yeah. example. And I think that the general feeling is kind of information should take you a long way, but probably not all the way. So, yeah, but you're right. The, this is, in some sense, that's the first question, is how do you move the information around? How do you transform the information in the way you need to? And then there's a question of once you have all the information, now what's the complexity of putting it together? And we don't have a good handle on, on that part of it. I, I understand this is ongoing research and things like that, but uh, do, you, do you see one of the areas that, that might be, uh, you, you might be, you're, at least you think that you're, you're close to starting to get a real handhold on? In terms of computational complexity or? Well, well, the, the whole the, the, whole. the whole the whole idea like is, is there is there something that that is looking uh, looking promising right now well so we have I mean I you know with various collaborators we have some ideas on how do you rigorously compare systems that that are I think looking promising in terms of relating it actually to computational complexity uh, we also have some ideas about you know so so a big question in complex systems is predictability right where generally they're not predictable, but the question is, what's the limit of prediction? Um, and you can ask things about, well, how does the difficulty of prediction, how is that governed by sort of the trade-off between sort of informational complexity, you know, something about the dynamics of the system, and the computational complexity? And we have some ideas on, on what those, we're starting to get some ideas on what those trade-offs look like and, and how to make that kind of trade-off rigorous in the setting of complex systems, I should say, because that kind of trade-off, you know, information computation trade-off, that kind of thing exists in other contexts. But as far as I know, not really in, in the setting of complex systems. Uh, you, had, you had mentioned earlier that uh, it wasn't until you, you came here that this was really a uh, sustainable area of, of, of study. So I was wondering if you can um, tell me a little bit about both, both how you got to the Santa Fe Institute and, and kind of how it changed uh, the way that you work and the way that you're able to work? Yeah, so I, I mean, since, like I said, since I was a freshman, I think I had complex systems in the back of my head, but I had sort of moved into pure math and, and computational complexity, and that's what I got my PhD in. And, you know, computational complexity, it's, it's a standard field. There are departments that have sub-areas that, you know, they have groups that work on this. And complex systems... You know, there are some places, but it's, I don't know if there's like a PhD in complex systems anywhere. And, you know, so it's sort of a hard career path to say, I want to work on complex systems right from the outset, even though I had that in the back of my mind the whole time. And actually, I, I applied to the Santa Fe Institute almost on a whim where my wife saw the ad and she said, look, Josh, you know, you've been thinking about complex systems for years. This is what you want to do. You should really apply. And I was like, I don't know. Can you really do that? You know, you have to kind of, at the end of the day, you have to get a job in an academic department. And, and she said, you know, just apply, see how it goes. And then I came here and I visited and, and I love the place. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a really fun mix of, you know, I still work on traditional computational complexity, which I see as related to complex systems. But if other people in my field don't see that, that's fine. It's still traditional computational complexity. You know, hopefully I'll be able to get a job <laughs> more or less in that area. Uh, so it's been an interesting mix of that and then working with people outside of my field here on more sort of complex, you know, straight complex systems things. And they've been really good about supporting that mix of research. And I've talked to, with, with the other people that I've talked to today, I've, I've, we've talked a bit about the, the whole 
kind of wide range of, of people that are here and, and the lack of, of disciplinary uh, walls that exist. So I was wondering, do you, do you have a, a story or an example of a time that you were working with someone else here or just talking with someone else here and it was a person who you generally would not have thought uh, is going to help you along your along your path, but all of a sudden you're like, note that. Like, that's the thing. Like, I needed to hear that. I don't know if I have specific stories, but but just the people I'm working with. I mean, I'm working with Jen Dunn, who works on ecology and food webs, which is about as, except for the fact that it involves networks, it's about as far as computer science, uh, from computer science as you can get. I've been working with David Wolpert, who does a mix of information theory and AI kind of stuff, which still computer science, but pretty far from computational complexity. Yeah, I've, I talk with with just about everyone here. I mean, it's really great just for sort of general thinking and inspiration. And um, I learn a ton from the people here. But yeah, I mean, it's funny to say that, oh, you know, the disciplinary boundaries aren't so big here. They're, they're not here, right? There's no, oh, I'm in the Department of Computer Science at the Santa Fe Institute because there are no departments. It's too small. And uh, yeah, so I often have this problem on forms, right? Where they say <laughs> institution, department, and I'm like, I don't have a department, right? I have a field that's like my home field that I come from. But even that, right, I'm now working in things that are far beyond that. So I, do you feel that it, it is uh, working, working on these other fields, even if it's not directly, a, a, like directly in the things that you were thinking of, even in complex systems, which can span all kinds of disciplinary boundaries anyway, do you feel that this, this is uh, something that, I mean, is, is helping you now and, and will uh, allow you to uh, think about things differently uh, as as you go forward just by being experienced in these different areas? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think being exposed to these different ideas and, and even just the way that people from different fields think about complex systems in their field has made me a much broader thinker in that regard where, you know, I could, and I do work with with other computer scientists who are here like Chris Moore and, you know, even the statistical physicists who are here that's kind of not so far from computational complexity, but really talking to people from, from a whole bunch of different fields, you really get sort of the full spectrum of, of thought. And the fact that everyone here has sort of a basic grounding in complex systems means that you all have some language in common, even if it's not very much. And I think that really helps sort of spread the ideas across dis what would be traditional disciplinary boundaries. Uh, well, thank you so much for giving me your time and talking to me today. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much. And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. I want to thank Yoav Kallis, Sid Redner, Joshua Gochow for giving me their time and for the Santa Fe Institute for hosting me and giving me these wonderful people to talk to. They're really great. You should look them up. It's amazing, the work that they're doing right now. Uh, if you want to find out more about any of the guests or the Santa Fe Institute, head on over to acmescience.com and find the post all about this episode where you'll find a bunch of links. The music that I'm talking over now and have been talking over throughout this episode is from Lowercase N. You can find them over at SoundCloud and Bandcamp. If you want to leave me any feedback, suggest any guests, or say you're at an institute and you want me to come in and interview some of your researchers, well, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. That is actually my, my personal 
email address. So I'll, I'll get it and I will respond. I, I love getting email. Uh, this episode, as all are all of Strongly Connected Components episode, is a Creative Commons Attribution Share like license episode. So please feel free to remix it and all that nice stuff as long as you attribute it to Acme Science and to me, Samuel Hansen, and to the guests when the guests are speaking. I think that that is just about it. So thank you all for listening. And I hope you have a mathrific week, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>